0: All right, so last weekend was Easter weekend in which we looked at what Jesus did for the whole world by dying on the cross uh, and then walking out of a tomb three days later, which was really the singular event that started the belief system known as uh, Christianity. And so today, building off of what Jesus has done for us, we are beginning a brand new series uh, that's designed to answer the question, what does it mean to follow him? In other words, what should that life actually look like? And it might surprise you, but there's actually uh, a lot less consensus around that than you might think. One particular place in Scripture that answers this question, probably uh, better than any other place, is actually a teaching that Jesus himself gave called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, There's two accounts of that in the Gospels. There's a shorter version of it in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 6. A little bit longer version of it in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7. And so what we're going to do starting today for the next nine weeks is just walk through various parts of that sermon Jesus gave to see what he had to say about what it means to follow him. And so before I, I get to the text that we're uh, going to walk through this morning, um, let me just say this. If you are listening to this and you are already a follower of Jesus, you you, you call yourself a Christian, then uh, my hope for you through this series is that it would uh, show you how and challenge you to live out your faith even in the midst of this situation that we find ourselves in right here and right now because I am absolutely of the mindset uh, that there is no situation God walks us through in which we have to put our faith on pause. It's just a a matter of uh, what it looks like to live out our faith in the midst of that situation. Uh, But secondly, if you're joining me and you are not uh, a Christian, wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, then I, I hope this series does two things above all else. First and foremost, I I hope this series shows you who Jesus really is, and secondly, I hope it shows you what Christianity really is. The reason I say this is because in my experience, a lot of people reject a version of Christianity that is actually not real Christianity. And a lot of people reject a version of Jesus, who is actually not the real Jesus. So all I want to do today, starting today for the next nine weeks, is basically just get out of Jesus' way and let him speak for himself about who he really is and what it really means to follow him. So today we are going to pick it up in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. It says this, Then looking up at his disciples, Jesus said, You who are poor are blessed because the kingdom of God is yours. You who are now hungry are blessed because you will be filled. You who now weep are blessed because you will laugh. You're blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven. For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. This is God's word. Now, Just before this, Luke says that Jesus had just spent all night in prayer to God on top of this mountain. And and so when morning came, uh, he handpicked his 12 disciples. He then came down the mountain that he was praying on uh, to this kind of level place Um, in front of this crowd of thousands and thousands of people and said the words that that I just read to you. But before we get into what Jesus is actually saying and what it really means, I really just want us to feel the anticipation that must have been building. Because prior to this point in Jesus' ministry, he'd already made a name for himself. It was already very clear... Uh, to everybody who had an interaction with Jesus because of the signs that he was performing, the miracles he was working, and even the way that he taught that this was no ordinary rabbi. So people knew that there was something different about him. But to kind of add to the anticipation here, what we read is that just before this, Jesus uh, specifically named his 12 disciples. That's a really significant thing. Because when a rabbi uh named hand picked his disciples, his team that really was was the way that a uh, that a rabbi officially declared the beginning of whatever it was that they had come here to do, and so see this scene coming down from this mountain that Jesus was on all night with this brand new team to this level place and in, in front of these thousands and thousands of people. They were all there hanging on every word that Jesus said because they knew that whatever came out of his mouth was going to set the tone. For what his ministry, his time here was really going to be all about. And when Jesus opened his mouth that day about 2,000 years ago, the very first thing he said at the beginning of this sermon, the very first thing he talked about was this new kingdom that he refers to as the kingdom of God. And that brings us to the first idea in this entire nine week series, which is this, Jesus came to build a new kingdom. Now Jesus' message, is all the disciples and the thousands of people gathered that day would have understood it, uh, is that Jesus was coming to bring revolution because Jesus was, in every sense of the word, a revolutionary. And he came here to do what revolutionaries have always done throughout history, which is overthrow an existing kingdom and install a new one in its place, which is why in verse 20 he's talking about this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, One thing I'd I'd ask you to consider, because this is really going to inform the way that we walk through this passage today, is that every kingdom throughout history has at least two aspects to it. Uh, It has first and foremost a pattern, and secondly, it has a product. In other words, every kingdom or administration has a pattern of values uh, that really informs the activities in the lives of the people of that kingdom, sort of what their life is going to be like. But then what every kingdom also has along with that is a product that it brings about in the lives of the people of that kingdom. A pattern and a product. And so what Jesus is doing in these verses we're looking at today is he's comparing uh, his kingdom to the one that he came to replace. And uh, as we begin moving through these two kingdoms, there's just one thing that I that I'd ask you to keep in mind, um, not just today, but all through this series. And it's this. There are only two kingdoms. That's it. And you are either a citizen of one or you are a citizen of the other. And so the most important question to ask yourself today and, and all through this series is very simply, which kingdom am I a citizen of? And, and with that, as we're about to see, it's entirely possible to be a citizen of Jesus's kingdom while living Uh, according to the values and really under the influence of the old one. So we're going to look at these two kingdoms side by side, but I'd like to start first off with the old kingdom, which is described by Jesus in verses 24 through 26, where Jesus says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. Now, what Jesus is explaining in those words is really the pattern of values uh, that sit atop uh, the old kingdom. Uh, In other words, the things that the old kingdom holds most dear, that really informs the lives of the people in that kingdom. So I just want to walk through this. First thing Jesus talked about is, is riches. And historically, Riches are always accompanied, even in our culture, riches have always been accompanied by one thing, and that's power. So first Jesus highlights uh, riches and the power that comes with them. Uh, Just after that, Jesus talks about being full, which is just another way of referring to never having any real material need. So that's comfort, basically. Then Jesus talked about laughing. Woe to you who are, you know, laughing. Uh, the, the the type of of laughter Jesus is talking about there is not happy, joyful laughter. It's actually a word that. Um it has the, the, the connotation of arrogance. Jesus is talking about the kind of laughing that someone does when they've beaten someone in something. Uh, they feel superior to that person, and so they then look down on that person with a kind of spirit of, of uh, condescension and laugh at them. And, and the, the, the type of arrogance Jesus is referring to there is something that always accompanies, it's always the byproduct of a great deal of success in this world. Uh, and then lastly, Jesus talks about being spoken well of Uh, which is just another way of talking about fame or recognition. So let me just summarize here. At the top of this old kingdom, you have uh, power, you have comfort, you have success, and then you have recognition. And this is going to bring us to our next idea today. It's that the old kingdom is the right-side-up kingdom. Now, I said earlier that every kingdom has at least two things, a pattern, Uh, and then a product. The reason that I I, I call this, what what you're seeing in these verses is is the the pattern of values in this kingdom. But the reason that I call it the right-side-up kingdom is because it makes perfect sense for you and I to live according to this kingdom's pattern of values. In other words, no one has ever needed to teach you to desire being strong over feeling weak. Uh, No one has ever needed to teach you... um, being comfortable over having to make sacrifices or uh, looking down on other people rather than being looked down on by other people or, or, or experiencing recognition rather than being forgotten. That, that pattern of values is really innate to the human heart and the reason for that is because every single one of us on autopilot has this tendency to live as though the only thing that matters is the here and the now and really that is the hallmark of the right side up kingdom. That's what this right-side-up kingdom is all about. It's about this life. And so the people who live according to this kingdom and according to this kingdom's values are primarily, if not exclusively, focused on what happens in this life. And they do everything that they can to pursue the values that this kingdom holds dear. Uh, They do everything they can to feel as powerful as possible and avoid weakness at all costs. They do everything they can to to be as comfortable as they can be. Everything they can to achieve whatever their societal definition of success is and everything they can uh, to be recognized for that success. And because they are so concerned, because they value those things above all else, the thought of losing any of those things or having those things threatened is really their greatest fear. And so that really is the pattern of values of the right-side-up kingdom. But now the question that I want to answer is, what product does this kingdom create? What does this kingdom produce? The product that the right-side-up kingdom creates is people who are utterly and ultimately empty. If you walk through Jesus' words here, what Jesus is saying is that you might, if you live according to this kingdom's values, you might... If you work really hard and, and, and maybe you, you know you, you experience a little bit of luck, you might get rich now, but Jesus says ultimately you will have no comfort. He says uh, you might experience what it is to be full, to have no material need, to be comfortable now, but Jesus says ultimately you will be hungry. You you might laugh now, but Jesus says ultimately you will mourn and you will weep. And what Jesus is saying here, if you just think about it, this makes perfect sense, because the plain fact is that if you and I build our lives only on the here and the now, that eventually you'll be left with nothing because nothing in this life lasts. In other words, if you build your life only on what you own, well, everything that you own is eventually going to leave your hands. Right? If, you, if you build your life and, and you center your life around what you achieve in this life, Well, eventually somebody's going to outdo you. Eventually you're going to be eclipsed. Eventually you're going to be forgotten. If you build your life around having people love you and admire you and respect you and look up to you, then the plain fact is, sooner or later, those people are going to die and so will you. And so what Jesus is basically saying here is is that if there is an eternal world, which Jesus repeatedly taught that there was, if there is an eternal world, then the person who only lives for and only um, focuses on this world, this life, the here and the now, is eventually going to find themselves completely and entirely empty-handed. And that's why Jesus says, woe, over and over to the people who live in this kingdom. That word's not a threat. It's not like Jesus was angrily yelling these words. It's a statement of compassion and regret. It's literally as though Jesus is saying, I feel sorry for you if you live in this kingdom according to this kingdom's pattern of values. Because sooner or later, you will eventually be completely empty-handed. There's a story of an American energy company that was based out of Texas. It was formed by merging uh, two different companies, Houston Natural Gas Gas, uh, and a company called Inner North. Uh, Just a few years after the merger, it quickly became uh, the largest seller of natural gas in 1992. The company's stock actually increased by 311% from the early 90s to the year 1998. Um, Then in 99, it increased another 56%. And then it increased by another 87% in the year 2000 alone. It, It was actually voted the most innovative large company in America in Fortune Magazine's most admired company survey. But what nobody knew about this company is that it hired, a honestly, a brilliant man named Jeff Skilling who developed a staff of executives... That by the use of accounting loopholes, had managed to hide literally billions of dollars of debt from failed deals and failed projects. In other words, uh, all of this company's value and profitability outside looking in, at the end of the day, it was just entirely smoke and mirrors. You may have heard th- of this company before. It was the center of a huge scandal. Uh, it was called Enron. Uh, eventually, Enron could not hide what it was doing any longer, um, And so stocks, which were selling uh, around $90 a share at its peak, fell to just $7 a share. A catastrophe, obviously. And at that point, uh, the CEO of another company, a guy by the name of Charles Watson, decided that he would come in uh, and, and buy Enron at that price because he thought that he could still kind of turn things around. Uh, but as investigation after investigation dove deeper in and exposed more of the fraudulence of Enron's accounting, the company's value continued to plummet even further until finally Charles Watson, who literally was the company's only hope, backed out. And before it was said and done, he was quote, this is a direct quote, he said, At the end, you could not give Enron to me. And before it was said and done, its stock prices, which were once selling about $90 a share, fell to just $0.61 a share. But the most heartbreaking thing about the Enron scandal is is, uh, really what it did to the people at the bottom. Um, See, the people at the top knew, eventually, that the company was just living on borrowed time. And so they convinced the employees, the people on the ground level, to just keep investing Uh, which of course made the price go up for the time being. And that allowed the high-level executives to sell off their stock to make their money, and then they could watch everything go up in flames. But all the people who invested in the company were left with literally nothing. And and by that, I mean not only did Enron not promise them, or, or not deliver on what it promised them, but it literally wound up taking everything from them. These people actually lost their homes for investing in this company. And it was said on the day that the company officially declared bankruptcy that the employees were told uh, to pack their belongings and were given just 30 minutes to vacate the building. Right. In the end, the only product that Enron actually created was people who were left with nothing. And the reason that I tell this story is because what Jesus is telling us here is that in the end, that's all the kingdom of this world is going to create. Now, before I keep moving here, I, I feel like I just have to point out... Uh, The question that that everything I'm saying right now, the question that all of this raises, really the only question that it raises, is who is Jesus? Because he's the one who's telling us this. He's the one saying all this. And obviously what he's saying is is very serious. It's very sobering. It might even be pretty unsettling. But the question that we should be asking is not what do we think of what he's saying. We should be asking who was Jesus? Really that's the question the entire Bible forces us to to ask. Uh, Was he who he claimed to be? And did he do what he claimed to do? Because if there was a historical Jesus and he really was the son of God and he really did successfully uh, predict and pull off his own resurrection that I don't think I have to tell you, we should take very seriously what he has to say about how this life is meant to be lived. Because what he's saying here is that living only for this world and in the kingdom of this world is the most foolish and deadly mistake that you and I can make. So with that, I want to pivot now uh, to what Jesus had to say about his kingdom, the kingdom that he was coming to install that's meant to replace this old kingdom. And that's found at the front of this passage. It's found in verses 20 through 23. It says, Then looking up at his disciples, Jesus said, You who are poor are blessed because the kingdom of God is yours. You who are now hungry are blessed because you will be filled. You who now weep are blessed because you will laugh. You're blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. So at the top of Jesus' kingdom, you have values that are literally the complete opposite uh, of that of the old kingdom, the kingdom of the world, the right-side-up kingdom. In in Jesus' kingdom, instead of power, you have weakness. Uh, Instead of comfort, you have sacrifice. Instead of success, you have grief. And then instead of recognition, you have exclusion. And this brings us to what's going to be actually our last idea today. It's that Jesus' kingdom is the upside-down kingdom. A commentator named Michael Wilcock, who who reflected on this passage, said, in the life of God's people, he said, in the life of God's people, it'll be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will, and I want you to hang on to this word, the people of God will prize, they will prize what the world calls pitiable, and they will suspect what the world calls desirable. In other words, what he's saying is that the mark of what really makes you a Christian is this, this reversal of values in the core of who you are. Before, cha- before Christianity changes anything that you and I do, it's meant to primarily change what we value. He says Christians prize what the world runs away from. We prize things like weakness and sacrifice and grief and exclusion. Now when I say that, that does not mean that we intentionally seek those things out and we intentionally try to ruin our lives in some kind of masochistic sense. What it means is that when we experience these things, rather than being undone by them like a person in the old kingdom will, the right side up kingdom will, rather than being undone by things like weakness and sacrifice and grief and exclusion. Instead, we actually see the value of those things. We understand that God can move powerfully in our lives through those things, that the kingdom of God can advance through us as God walks us through those experiences. And so not only do we prize those things when they happen to us, we prize people who are characterized by those things. We prize people that the world looks at and says they're weak. We prize people who are mourning we prize people who are experiencing exclusion. And so that's really the pattern of, 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 of what Jesus' kingdom is like. It's an upside-down kingdom, and it bears absolutely no resemblance to the kingdom of this world, which is why it can be called the upside-down kingdom. And so what I'd like to do, just like I did with the right-side-up kingdom, is just real briefly touch on the pattern of this kingdom and then the product that it creates. So, so, first off, the pattern of the upside down kingdom, like I mentioned, it's, it's a complete reversal of values compared to the rest of the world. So, Christians, are, or, or you could say people who are living in this upside down kingdom, are no longer controlled by the world, the things that the world thinks are so critical. People in, in this kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom, are not controlled by power, by success, by comfort or by recognition. And that does not mean, this is a really important uh, uh, thing to touch on here, that does not mean that we run away from those things if God happens to give them to us. See, one way, in a very obvious way, that you can be controlled by something is to desperately pursue it. But another much more subtle way of being controlled by something is to desperately run away from it. In other words, as a Christian, if you can't stand being around money, Or or you can't handle, you have absolutely no idea what to do with any measure of success or any measure of recognition, then there's a really good chance that you're just as controlled by it as as the people who are desperately running toward it. A a, a person who's a Christian, a person who who is living in this upside down kingdom simply doesn't need any of those things. They're not running toward it. They're not running away from it. It it, it doesn't make them. It doesn't break them. And so the, the question is, what's the product of this kingdom? of Jesus' upside-down kingdom? What does this actually create in the lives of the people who live in this kingdom? And I want to take a second here because this is so important to pause here and understand this aspect of what Jesus is teaching us. If the product of the right-side-up kingdom is people who are utterly and ultimately empty-handed, then according to Jesus' words here, the product of the upside-down kingdom, his kingdom, is people Who are utterly and ultimately free. I want you to see this. See, in in this passage, all through it, notice Jesus is saying the ones who are now hungry, the ones who are now poor, the ones who are now weeping are blessed. So I just want you to think about the, the picture that Jesus is painting here and make it personal. So you're weeping. So things in your life are obviously very difficult. They haven't worked out the way that you planned them to. You're you're experiencing a great deal of pain because of that. And yet Jesus says that you are blessed. And that word blessed, what it literally means is to be deeply happy or deeply satisfied in the core of your being. And so, uh, someone who's living in this kingdom, according to Jesus, I think this is really remarkable when you actually think about what's being said here. According to Jesus' words here, a person living in his kingdom is someone who can weep, and obviously they're experiencing a great deal of pain, and yet at the same time, they can be blessed, they can be deeply happy, they can be deeply satisfied underneath all of that weeping in this life. And what's really important to highlight here is that a person in the old kingdom can't do that. In the old kingdom, if, if power, if you, whatever you value the most, if it's power, if it's success, if it's comfort, if it's being recognized, if that gets threatened or you never attain that at all, you can't be deeply blessed in the midst of that. Only somebody living in Jesus' upside down kingdom can weep And yet be deeply satisfied at the same time. And Jesus explains why that's possible here in verse 23. Verse 23 says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. Jesus is saying here that that when your life is falling apart from the outside, that you can rejoice in that very day, because great is your reward in heaven. In, in, In other words, he's not saying rejoice when you get to heaven. You know, you know, walk through this miserable life, but you'll be able to rejoice when you get to heaven and get the reward. He's, he's calling you and I to rejoice in the day of our exclusion, in the day that we're slandered, in the day that, that we're poor, in the day that we're weeping, in the day that we're mourning, because great is our reward in heaven. Not great will be our reward in heaven. So what Jesus is saying is that people who live in his upside down kingdom in this life, what they have access to, they have access to something in this life that they're holding on to, and really that's holding on to them, that nothing in this life can threaten or really take away from them. And a person who understands what Jesus is saying here, a Christian who understands what Jesus is saying here, is going to live a life that, that really from the outside looking in, you know, to someone who's living in the, in the other kingdom, the old kingdom, the right side up kingdom, a person living in Jesus' kingdom is going to live a life that looks almost reckless. Because they're going to be so willing to let go of all of the things that that people in the world are so desperately trying to get their hands on. And so if you're living in Jesus' upside down kingdom, then you're going to be incredibly generous with your money. You're going to be incredibly generous with your time. You're going to be incredibly generous with your gifts, with your life. And when God walks you through things like, you know, if you experience what it's like to be poor in this life, or you experience, you know, what it's like to to, to be weeping, to be empty, then not only... Uh, is that not going to break you, but you're going to know that in and through those times, the kingdom of God is nearer to you than ever. Because let's face it, you know, I'll, I'll just speak personally for me, but I'm willing to bet that you can say this as well, that the times in our lives, the times in my life, that I have had the most authentic, um, life-changing, life-giving encounters with God have never been when everything was going according to my plan. It's never been when life was working perfectly for me. The times that I've had the most powerful encounters with God is when my life was most difficult. And that's the way that it normally is in our lives. That when the bottom falls out and when nothing's working the way that that it should, it's then so often and only then so often that we can have these life-changing encounters with God. And so a Christian is somebody, a person in the upside-down kingdom is somebody who not only is not afraid of those times, but sees the eternal value in those times. And so they don't go through life desperately holding on to their money or desperately holding on to their possessions or desperately holding on to their time or desperately holding on to their reputation or any of that. They live a life that looks reckless compared to the standards of the old kingdom uh, and they're going to be so much more more, more happier, so much more deeply satisfied than anybody from the old kingdom because they're free from needing what the world needs and I think one of the best pictures of this in scripture is found in a story that, that I don't think we spend a lot of time talking about. It's Acts chapter 7 where you have this man named Stephen. Or in, in Acts chapter 7 you have, you have Stephen who is getting ready to lose his life to be murdered as the first martyr of the Christian church. And so Stephen is, is, has been placed in this position that should be filling him with fear or with hatred or with bitterness or with with cowardice, or some horrible mixture of all those things, and yet none of those things are present in Stephen's life. Because if you read Acts chapter 7, you'll see that that what happens when he was right there, is he looked into heaven, and he saw two things. He He saw first and foremost, he saw God's glory, and then he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so what he understood in that moment was that even though in this life he was experiencing injustice, that that didn't matter, that that didn't own him, and that, that, that that did not control him because he knew that he was already vindicated before God. And so what this means is that a, a Christian is somebody who's able to say, maybe I have lost recognition with people. you know, Maybe I have lost the feeling that I'm in control of my own life. Maybe I have lost a great deal of money that would have been able to purchase me a more comfortable version of life. You know, Maybe my physical beauty has faded. Maybe maybe my physical health is deteriorating. But in and through that, a Christian is somebody who can say, hey, maybe, maybe nothing about my life has worked out the way that I planned it, but I am deeply satisfied in God. Because in my relationship with God, I have something that this, this world could have never given me anyway, and I have something that this world will never be able to take away from me. Only somebody living in Jesus' upside-down kingdom is able to say that. And so because you're no longer controlled by the things at the top of the, of the old kingdom, the right-side-up kingdom, you are, you are utterly and you will entirely be free. Now, at this point, I have to pause and, and highlight something that, that I, I think we can all agree with. I don't know anybody who wouldn't want this. I mean, here we are, if I can just bring this down to where we live, here we are in the middle of a pandemic, something that I've certainly never experienced before, that I feel like it's changing my entire world, you know, every single week. Uh, There's lots of uncertainties about the days and the weeks and the months ahead, and I'm willing to bet that that instills a great deal of fear in some of us, maybe all of us to some degree, if we were willing to get honest. And so when I, when I see Jesus' words here, and I, and I think about the reality of, 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 of being totally unmoved by... Just think about this. What, what would it be like to be totally unmoved by what might happen to you in this life? To be totally unmoved by what might happen to your finances? What might happen to your career? What might happen to your relationships? What might happen to your physical health? To be completely free from the anxiety of all that and to be given the ability to rejoice even in the middle of the mess, I think that is more attractive right now than it ever has been. I think, I think we, we've come to an awareness of our need for something like this more than we ever, maybe than we ever have. And so the question is, how do you get in this kingdom? I mean, how do you, how do you live this way? And the answer could not be any more simple yet any more profound. The answer is nothing less than Jesus himself. See, the the reason Jesus can say in this passage that even though you're weeping now, you will rejoice, this is so important to, to grasp, the reason Jesus can say that even though you're weeping now, you will rejoice, is because Jesus, at the cross, through what he did here, the story we call the gospel, Jesus experienced the weeping that you and I deserved. He experienced poverty for us. He experienced rejection for us. In other words, the only reason we can live in his kingdom is because he took our place in ours. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is not that in Jesus we have this great example. It's that in Jesus there has been this great exchange. So so what I mean to say here is that if you want to be free, and I'll make this personal for you, but if you want to be free of the rule of the, of the old kingdom, then you have got to see that Jesus experienced poverty for you so that you could know what it is to truly be rich in him. He experienced weakness for you so that you could find real strength in him. He experienced mourning and weeping for you so that you could find real comfort in him. And finally, he experienced rejection, not just by his own people, but by even his heavenly father on the cross as he hung for your and my sin, he experienced that rejection for you so that you could be accepted by God forever. But more than just seeing that and more than just understanding that and more than just acknowledging that, what you have to do in light of that is to put your trust in Jesus, to hide your life in Jesus as your Lord and as your savior. The only reason we can get into this kingdom is because of Jesus. And so we're, we're almost at the end here, but, but let me just say this. I think there's just really one question that this teaching, and, and maybe this entire series begs, and I already said this on the front end. The question is, what kingdom are you living in? What kingdom are you living in? It may be, maybe you're listening to me right now, and you, you, you call yourself a Christian. You've already made the decision to give your life to Jesus. But you know, you know, that so many areas of your life do not reflect that. So many areas of your life are more marked by the values and the pattern, the product of the old kingdom than this new kingdom that Jesus died to bring you and me into. And if that's you, then the question I believe Jesus' words would force you and I to ask ourselves is very simply, what would it look like to be a citizen of the upside-down kingdom, even in the midst of this quarantine? How would being a citizen of the upside-down kingdom change the way that you view your money? Right, we're all supposed to be getting these checks from the government. I'm going to really hit home here. We're all supposed to be getting these checks from the government. I already got mine. Now there's a chance, that there's a good chance that somebody on the other side of this screen, maybe you really need that money. Maybe God's put somebody in your life that really needs it more than you. How would, be a, how would being a citizen of the upside-down kingdom change the way you view your money, the way you view your time, the way you view your relationships? the way you view the future, the way you view the people that God has placed in your life. How would being a citizen of this kingdom change the way you're living right now? But maybe you're listening to me right now and, and, and you've not given your life to Jesus. You have not made that decision to trust him as your personal Lord and Savior. And maybe you know, as sure as you're listening to this right now, that he has been calling you and he has been drawing you to himself. And you know that it's time to come home. It's time to make this decision once and for all. And if that's you, and you're ready to make that decision, I just want to make that as easy as possible for you to do right here and right now. You can pray and repeat after me and borrow these words if you're ready to give your life to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I need you to save me from my sin and make me right with God. Just as you gave your life for me, so I choose to give my life to you. Please show me what it means to be a citizen of your kingdom. And give me the power to live that out. In your holy name I pray. Amen. If you just made the decision to put your trust in Jesus, then I would like to be the first one to formally congratulate you on being a citizen of the Upside Down Kingdom. It's nice to have you aboard. We always got room for one more. But either way, I want to leave you with this. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that God rescues us from the kingdom of darkness and he transfers us, he delivers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. So I'm asking you to join me all through this series and find out what life in this upside-down kingdom is is really all about. That's it, and that's all.